At Athletic Brewing Company, our innovative process allows us to brew great-tasting craft beer without the alcohol. From IPAs to stouts to golden ales and more, our beers are made with organic grains and start at only 50 calories. Now you can enjoy the refreshing taste of great beer anytime, anywhere. No matter your motivation, if you want to keep a clear head and drink healthier, Athletic Beers are here for you. Place an order today at athleticbrewing.com and get free shipping on two six-packs or more. Thank you. Thank you for joining the Fastest Known Podcast. Again, I get a lot of nice comments from everyone who listens to the podcast. And don't forget to go online and give it a five-star rating if you so desire. It doesn't actually matter to me, but the five-star rating and a review helps other people find us and so we can join the community here. The Fastest Known Podcast keeps it moving. We don't waste time chit-chatting And it's just me talking with some of the most interesting people around. And today is no exception. I am speaking with Nick Petitella and Ryan Smith from Boulder, Colorado. Welcome, Nick and Ryan. Hello. Hi, guys. So just just before we get going, you got your project. We're going to talk about your project here in a minute. You got it done in the nick of time. I mean, as of uh, two days ago, this wouldn't have worked very well, would it? Yeah, too right. Uh, it seems like we, uh, through luck, or I'd like to say skill in planning, we managed to just pull it off before a combination of fire, apocalypse, and snow <laughs> descended on Colorado. So yeah, we're very lucky. It sure did. You did your project on September 4th, and uh, heck, it was just a couple days later. I think it was the temperature in Denver hit an official high of 101 degrees, and then two days later it snowed. So, yeah, climate change might be real. What do you guys think? <laughs> yeah, it's definitely been, you know, the the nature of our kind of project here is it's quite fickle with regards to what the weather window. So something that we were kind of fretting over in the last couple of months have been quite tough in Colorado just with the fire um, fires that we've got going on, two or three major ones that have really kind of polluted the skies and made it pretty challenging even during our kind of scouting missions up high to kind of uh, punch above those uh, uh, smoke plumes. So yeah, really challenging time here. Right. And it could be worse. It could have been in California. <laughs> yeah, I know. I think, um, I think they're even having it worse than we are, which is um, uh, pretty sad. Um, luckily we got this uh, snow dump in the last uh, day or two, which has uh, hopefully made a bit of a dent to some of the fires that we're seeing, but uh, time will tell. Indeed. Well, let's get uh, a lot of you guys have been doing a lot of great projects here for a long time, but some people might not have heard your names. We're noticing that neither of you are on Facebook. You guys aren't big social media mavens. Instead, you're good runners. Wow. Kind of old school <laughs> there. Um, yeah. But Nick, you've done a you've done a few things here. Collegiate Peak, FK, uh, Collegiate Loop. Uh, FKT Nolans twice, Tour de Jean, that giant race in Italy. Bob Graham round. Now, Ryan, you mentioned the Bob Graham also. Did you two do it together? Uh, yeah, there was a few of us from Boulder here that went over to do it in, I think, 2016. So, yeah, it was a kind of a good time. Nick did it um, solo and unsupported. Um, I did it mostly solo, 
I, I, it wasn't particularly intentional. I think that maybe we just didn't have a lot of friends. So <laughs> that was the, uh, that, that was the result of it that, uh, yeah, we kind of did it in a bit of an unusual style, I guess, but we had a great time doing it. It's a really fantastic, uh, route over in the UK. And, and by together, uh, Ryan was about seven hours in front of me, so, so we weren't really, weren't really together for uh, much of the time. Indeed. And uh, Nick, unsupport is very, very odd for that, uh, because this is a social event in the UK. Yeah, we, uh, as Ryan said, we had a bit of trouble getting help. Uh, so just kind of last minute uh, when there was no one there, just decided to throw some snacks in a bag and uh, just try uh, best to get it done uh, on my own. Well, you guys got a good background here, UTMB for Ryan and Hard Rock for Nick, including a fourth and a fifth place. But I'm also looking on uh, some of your race results, which are good. But you guys, if I may say so, are not known for your racing. Would that be a fair thing to say? I mean, outstanding results, don't get me wrong. Of course, UTMB and Hard Rock in particular. But uh, I think Ryan especially has been good at racing, and Nick especially almost not so much. Am I might be critical <laughs> here, Nick? I mean, I'm, I'm kind of looking at this. Uh, I'm sorry, but and Ryan's got, you know, from UTMB, the TNF, and you know, Quad Rock High Lonesome, you know, first place there. And Nick, you're, you know, you've been doing this a quite a while. And uh, you know, I don't think is racing your forte or am I selling you short? I, I would say maybe not as much. I'm uh, maybe not quite as fast uh, as Ryan, but maybe a little bit better on the, the long mountain efforts. Okay. Well, yeah, we'll... I think both me and Nick kind of sail under the radar a little bit because that's kind of our style a little bit more. You know, we're kind of no fuss people, just like to go running. We're both, I would say, <clears throat> probably better than most in terms of just experience. That's kind of our forte. We pretty much always get it done no matter what, uh, we've got a penchant for suffering and misery. And I think that's our forte more than most. Well, I presume that's an uh, English accent, Ryan. Uh, yeah, um, I kind of grew up in uh, Scotland and England. And then I've been in the US now for, ooh, I forget, maybe 15 years and just became a US citizen last year. Well, congratulations, I think. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure who's, uh, and I, I'm not sure which which, which country's going to uh, mess up the most in the coming years. But we both oh, seem to be wow. doing pretty well. <laughs> yeah, we're 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 still in lockstep on that one, aren't we? Yeah, I think. So. But suffering and misery. You have a great background, being from the UK. Pardon, my, pardon the little joke there. Absolutely. And everyone who's listening, definitely go into the show notes where you can see complete bios of Ryan and Nick. And they're very limited social media hashtags if you want to follow those as well. Because these guys, kind of getting back to the topic here, did something that I thought was just dramatic. It's a route that was just created, literally done for the first time on August 15th of this year by Justin Simone, speaking of long endurance projects. And this route is called uh, Milner to Berthed Pass. And it literally is on the crest of the Continental Divide through Rocky Mountain National Park and Indian Peaks Wilderness, two passes. And this is a huge route. Uh, I could talk forever on this, but I better let you two. What, what's the one or two liners? What do you guys have to say about this route? 
Uh, yeah, it's a good question. There's a, where do we even start? It does actually have quite a bit of history, as you know, Buzz. It goes back a fair ways, and people have talked about it for a long time, certainly around the Boulder area. Um, it's, a, it's a great stretch of the Continental Divide uh, where there's no road that goes between that section, so you can't drive a vehicle at all over that area. Um, we kind of got wind of it sometime last year, and we had an attempt at it last year, which was... Um, somewhat laughable. Uh, <laughs> I really didn't think we kind of knew what we were getting involved with, um, but we kind of attempted the last year. The, the main premise is that you run from this pass, Milner's Pass in Rocky Mountain National Pass uh, Park, sorry, to uh, Berthoud Pass, which is at the edge of the James Peak Wilderness. Um, it's somewhere around 75 miles. And our main objective was to summit 50 named peaks along the divide um, because there's, there's a little bit of route choice as you go along there even if you're staying on the divide but our main objective was to summit those 50 named peaks along the way and all of those named peaks are above 12,000 feet in elevation as well well let's just pause it here so people can observe what you just said 50 named summits all above 12,000 feet in elevation so this is massive and from Milner to Bertha, just to hit your point home a little harder, Ryan, there is no road crossing at all. So this is amazing terrain. And part of it is literally in sight of, of Boulder and other towns, but it's up there. It's, uh, it's an amazing route. And I think it comes in GPX-wise at 81 miles. Of course, someone says 81 miles, so what? But with over 30,000 feet of vert and 50 summits over 12,000 feet, you guys are above Timberline the entire time. Yeah, I think we joked at the end that that was the first tree we saw in about two and a half days. <laughs> yeah, yeah, probably was the first tree you saw. Well, this, I have to offer a little personal comment because when Justin Simone did this, on August 15th, I was like, oh my gosh, because I wanted to do this route. I conceived this route literally 25 years ago. And when I invented the LA freeway, it was literally practice for this route. This, this is the one I really wanted to do. And I attempted it myself a little over two years ago, got rained off. So I had to abandon and never went back. And so when it was finally done, it kind of... <laughs> If I was a nice guy, if I was a really good person, I would have been happy. But instead, I, I was kind of sad that I wasn't the one to do it myself. That's kind of the, the person I am. I'm really not that <laughs> nice of a guy. But now I've recovered, so I can congratulate you too. <laughs> well, I know how you feel, Buzz, because me and Nick were also quite eager to be the first to do it. So uh, we were actually up there on a scouting mission a few weeks ago and actually uh, bumped into Justin as he was on his attempt. And oh. uh, definitely a little piece of our heart sank <laughs> when we realized that he was probably going to get it done. Um, yeah, but th that was okay. We kind of changed our perspective to be like, well, you know, as long as Justin gets it done, it's not kind of, you know, this weird niche route that <laughs> Ryan and Nick can do and no one else is interested in. So, you know, we kind of put a positive spin on it. And, uh, hey, it's getting quite popular now. So, you know, there was a little bit of uh, positivity in that note. Well, that's a good attitude. <laughs> I, I should learn from you. Uh, Justin did it. 
in four, essentially four days, you know, three nights, four days, but you guys just crushed it in a little over two days. I mean, you, you, you spent one bivouac night. Other than that, kept moving two hours, five minutes, uh, two, uh, two, my gosh, two days, five hours, 52 minutes with that one bivouac. And that is rough. That's well, let, let me just stop you there. There was, there was no bivouac actually. <laughs> our, our style from the get-go in this endeavor was always a single push with no sleep. So that was very central to our kind of gear setup and approach. So we actually were continuously moving for the, the full 54 hours. Um, there was really just a few spots where we sat down, reorganized gear, but otherwise we we're always on the move. Gotcha. Thank you for that clarification. I misread your trip report when you uh, made it to the first place you want the place you wanted to at night, but that meant that's where you made it to and you kept going. Wow. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Over that's, that's 53 hours nonstop above timberline. Yes. Okay. All right. So should I uh, say, was it hard? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that's a bit of an understatement. Maybe. Yeah, and uh, Nick Nick's probably got more of a a realistic attitude to it because he's done more of these type of things. This was my first kind of, I would say, long endeavor. I've done lots of hundred milers and things, but mostly around uh, the twenty four hour mark is the most I've kind of been up on my feet. Is generally what I do. Uh, I found it incredibly challenging. Um, even though I managed the sleep deprivation pretty well, uh, both me and Nick were fine with that. Um, the last, the last night and day were, were, were definitely, I was questioning our, um, uh, kind of mental faculties at that time. <laughs> yeah. I think, yeah. I think anytime you're out for, you know, 50 plus hours, it's hard, right? That's, that's never, I don't think there's an easy way to keep moving for 50 hours. Uh, but I would say this round is particularly hard. Just the the mental concentration uh, required is much more than I think anything else, uh, you know, Nolan's or something, because you're pretty much off trail the entire time. And then you add in fourth and fifth class uh, type of terrain. It just kind of wears on you mentally, I think, much more than most other routes. You can't to have a misstep yeah exactly and it's all rough train you mentioned Nolan's good comparison Nolan's has that massive vert because it's dropping down low and so you keep climbing up but technically it's actually moderate it's just a lot of tailless this has uh this is a lot of fourth class and a few fifth class spots as well yeah we um we kind of found out the hard way last summer uh the end of last summer when we tried it kind of I would say mostly on site. Um, <clears throat> things were looking quite good until we got to the the first kind of technical spot called McHenry's Notch, right. in Rocky Mountain National Park, and we were like, "Oh, how hard can this be?" You know, and I think ordinarily, if you know where you're going, that's a 45 minute stretch. You know, but uh, three hours later, at 2 a.m. in the morning, we're still kind of wandering around aimlessly over incredibly dangerous <laughs> terrain. You know, wondering what the heck we'd got ourselves in for. So, yeah, the, the, the technicality is really serious. And I think when we failed last year, uh, later on in the route at Isolation Peak, we realized that we needed to actually commit a lot of uh, scouting time to this route and really understand, um, you know, the, the, the tricky spots. Right. 
on Sidey, this would be nuts. Correct. Yes. That was definitely <laughs> our conclusion. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Well, you mentioned isolation. I always thought that was the technical crux, climbing directly out of the notch. I think that's about 5'5". Five, five. But when I was doing this with Peter one time, he just he couldn't do that. And uh, I sat up there waiting, and then he went around to the west side and found an easier way up on the west side of isolation. Is that the way you guys went? That is, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's a great sneak around there that um, is easy to do, given you can actually find it. And uh, <laughs> that's what we failed last year, uh, kind of wandering around, fairly sleep-deprived, probably, I forget how long we were in, 17 hours in, we were kind of just mentally exhausted after our kind of uh, uh, time spent on McHenry's. And I think that just, you know, going back to what Nick said, the, the real challenge of this route is managing the kind of mental exhaustion because you have to be so focused and concentrated working your way through this like technical terrain. And last year we just, we were mentally exhausted at that time. We couldn't get, we couldn't really find our way through. And up. it keeps, and it keeps coming. I mean, much, much later you yeah. have to go up, uh, you know, through the Indian peaks and North Arapaho, which people rarely do North Arapaho and those gendarmes there, you have to pick the crack line and that's coming you know, days into it. Yeah, that, that's what makes it, I think, quite hard is you really hit the hardest sections after you've been out for 30 plus hours. So you, the mental bit there, uh, I think was quite challenging. Wow. So scouting, how many forays did you make up there this summer? I think we had something close to 10 days that yeah. we were out there. And I think I totaled it up. It was like 60 hours or something we had, we had spent. It was a lot. And I think one of the challenges is if you, if you look at just one of those scouting days, one of the tricky ones is McHenry's notch. But, um, you know, if you don't want to rely on friends to do pickups and point to points and things, just to do a loop there to scout one tiny section, it was a 37 mile run that took us 11 hours <laughs> just so we could <laughs> scout a 45 minute section. So that's the kind of commitment of, of the line is just, you know, it's not just in, in getting it done, obviously, but the, the scouting is pretty hard work. I really respect that. That's really good style, you two. I, I, I really appreciate that because we're obviously administering the fastest known time site and people email saying, I want to go do this, but they're asking various questions about it. And I'm thinking, well, just go practice it. I mean, yeah. it's literally a 12 mile trail run in Virginia. Yeah. And I say, just go do it. And, you know, if it didn't go well, go do it again. You know, practice it. I think uh, part of the FKT ethic, if you will, is not the time. It's not about the number. It's about getting to learn and grow and understand our natural terrain and improving your skills and your understanding. And you guys really did that with uh, 10 days of scouting up there. I, that's, that's wonderful style. Yeah, and I think we both really enjoyed you know, that time out and, and maybe not so much the 4am or so departures from Boulder a few times, but uh, otherwise, I think just seeing new areas uh, was probably one of the nicest parts of, of doing this project. 
Yeah, and I think the slow build-up of the scouting helped our kind of uh, confidence as well. You know, every day that we spent out, we kind of staggered the scouting, so we left the harder bits towards the end. And that kind of helped just, you know, we'd scout the first technical bit. That would give us some confidence, you know, so we'd do another day and we would do that successfully. We had like, you know, one one or two maybe failures in there where we couldn't find a line through like the Kasparov Traverse um, we were maybe a little earlier, there was too much snow, so we had to bail backwards off of that. Um, but every time we spent out there, we just got kind of a little more comfortable with, you know, um, you know, route finding, which I think is really the key to this route. Um, you know, is having a kind of a little bit of an inclination in your mind, a little skill set that, that you can find your way through tricky, tricky terrain without kind of panicking, I suppose. Right. Wow. What a great summer you had. And like we said, few minutes ago you got it done in the nick of time a few days later you've been done until next june correct <laughs> yeah absolutely um that's kind of one of the challenges with this route is that you to be successful because we knew our style was to do it in a single push you know where we're moving the whole time both day and night we needed a two-day guaranteed weather window where there was no uh, chance of precipitation or, you know, we really needed a stable, a stable weather window. And, um, there's not a lot of time. If you just look historically at the weather patterns, when you can guarantee that this is kind of the sweet spot and it's really only open for one or two weeks. That's it. Wow. Now you also, as you've already described, did it unsupported, which means obviously you got water along the way. Other than that, all the food you needed, interestingly enough, People have done the LA freeway, which is essentially half of it. I mean, it's the the, the technical middle section, mm-hmm. you know, the, the southern part uh, after the Arapahoes is, you know, cruiser and it's cruiser, except for McHenry's, of course, coming off of Milner. Uh, but people are doing that supported and self-supported. They're caching water and so forth. So you guys found water and just did it pure Alpine style. Yeah, we we dropped down a few times to get water. Uh, I think the reason for our style was more, I, I think we were both maybe a little too lazy to put caches out for ourselves. And and it's quite a ways in for anyone to meet us. Uh, so I think we just figured it, it wasn't worth it. Uh, and we just, you know, carry everything that we would need and, and find whatever water uh, was necessary. Yeah, I think we had... I want to say about five water stops planned out ahead of time. (laughs) Um, And yeah, like Nick said, a couple of them, you have to drop off the divide, not amazingly far, but you know, trust me, you really feel it (laughs) when you're 30 hours in dropping down 1500 feet to, uh, to an Alpine Lake to pick, pick water up. Um, There's a couple of, there's a spring or two along the way. Um, and then at the end, we chose to kind of just go on fumes, really. So we did uh, Dorothy Lake, which is, I want to say, 20, 25 miles from the finish. That piece took us about, oof, I don't know, how long, Nick? Uh, 15 hours. 15 hours yeah. with about two and a half liters of water. I, I definitely don't recommend this at <laughs> home, folks. <laughs> um, not, not a fun finish, but just about doable. Wow. Well, apparently it was doable Uh, and there's photos. So make sure listeners go onto the website, click through, find it. You got nice photos. You guys did a good job on the photos and get 
little idea of the scope there and these the two signs, Continental Divide at Miller and Continental Divide at Berthoud Pass. And people have done other routes up there avoiding the crest, which personally, in my opinion, is a little odd because if you're going to do it, do the crest, stay on top. And if you can't handle it, then don't do it. That's fine. You can do something else. So I appreciate that you guys just went up on top, stayed up on top. Like you said, you have to drop off. That's what I did also to get water, but then you retrace your steps. You're not going around anything. You drop off, get the water, retrace your steps, regain the crest and on you go. Yeah. I think the, that, that was kind of key to our objective was, um, you know, obviously run between the two passes, but our main objective, like I said, was to tag all 50 peaks along the way. And that kind of holds you to staying on the divide because by tagging those, you know, there's no real way around anything. You have to do those difficulties. Right. So let's talk, we normally never talk about gear, but this is kind of a big one. So let's just touch on it a little bit. Uh, Trekking poles, of course, came out really big 10 years ago. I was a major early adopter of poles, still use them. But this is an interesting terrain. But you can't use them on really on fourth class, but they really help on the second and third class. So did you use poles and how'd that work out considering the mix of terrain? We did both use poles, uh, but we had a, a, both of us were also wearing waist packs and we could essentially strap the poles when they were collapsed to that for the technical parts. Uh, so kind of got the best of, of both there. So could use the poles uh, on the easier stuff and then just have them stowed for the uh, technical parts and not have to worry about dealing with them. Gotcha. And then how about food? I mean, obviously you're doing snack food, race food, kind of, you know, age station type food. Anything special there? Or did you- yeah, we definitely learned from again on the steaks last year where we just our packs were just far too big, not very comfortable. Um, we just made a lot of great mistakes last year, which I think is key to success this year. So we kind of rethought everything ground up, um, including our kind of pack configuration. And the food was one of them. Um, we had kind of a benchmark in terms of calorific density where we are looking at, I think about um, four calories per gram as the minimum. Um, so we switched out a lot of the, stuff we took last year we used like uh products like tailwind carbo pro um which is easier to get down and then things like fritos which are surprisingly quite still quite tasty 35 hours in uh, pack quite a lot of uh calorific density um a few bars and things i think i messed up more than nick nick's definitely got it more dialed than i do and i i made a few poor choices i don't i think if i never see a protein bar again i'll be a lucky person <laughs> uh, Fritos, that's a classic. The adventure racers going way back decades brought those cans of Pringles <laughs> because they like the salt and the oil. Yeah, we um, we definitely had a, a few luxury items, like we had some sandwiches in there. <laughs> but actually, surprisingly, there's quite a lot of calorific density in a, in a you know a, a butter and cheese sandwich. <laughs> so actually, it did make the cut uh, in terms of calorific density. And kind of added to the variety of it, which maybe hopefully kept us a little sane late in the day. Nice. Well, nine calories per gram of fat. So it's twice as much as carbohydrate or protein. So 
nuts and the other oils are really caloric dense. Nice. Yeah. yeah, we went for, I think our benchmark was we originally figured 48 hours, which is a little aggressive in hindsight. Um, certainly doable, I think, on this route. But So we planned for 48 hours with a bit of a backup. Our rough yardstick was 2,500 calories per 12 hours, I think, right, Nick? Yeah. Um, which works out to be about 200 calories per hour or thereabouts. That's pretty much what we're going for. Oh, that's a lot. That's yeah. good. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's keeping it up there. Okay. Okay. Good. Well, thanks for those, uh, those data points. Another piece of gear, which be important here is the headlamp. You guys had to have good headlamps to do this type of train at night and in early September, the nights are a little bit longer than they are in the summer. So what, uh, if I may say so, what kind of headlamps were you using? Great, great question, Buzz, because I've probably talked and researched this more than anyone has any rightful <laughs> mind to do. Um, yeah, I, I had used um, Petal Nows for many years, um, which is a great headlamp, still recommend it. But one of the downsides with the Nows is the uh, proprietary battery system, um, and it's relatively heavy. So I kind of got wind of um, a couple of brands, which maybe a lot of people wouldn't have um, known about certainly over in the US, but uh, one called Zebralite and another one called Ledlenser, which I think is a bit more popular in Europe. Both of those take uh, an 18650 battery, which is a stock battery that costs like somewhere between four and six dollars. It's actually the same battery that's used in Tesla vehicles, I believe, same battery type of cell. So I had a bunch of those, those batteries and these two headlamps in my setup, um, which I think worked pretty well and was a good weight to power ratio. I had never heard of that. I still use the Petzl now because it's so bright and it's adjustable. So, hmm, if you yep. guys uh, want to put anything like that into the show notes, send me an email. I'll yeah. add it. If if you want, you don't have to. But that way, listeners who have never heard of a zebra light might be able to track that down a little easier. So if sure. there's anything you want me to include, just shoot me an email and I'll add it to the written show notes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we're very happy to turn nerd out about gear. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's another thing that certainly gets to me because I've always done these projects. Um, I should say the Divide Project solo. I've done a lot with Peter. I've done things with uh, Jared Campbell and Andrew Skirka. But mo most of my Divide projects have all been done solo. And it gets a little scary up there at night. I, that's just how I feel. It's... Uh, I'm really happy at night. I'm really happy up high. But the both in combination to me are a little bit alarming, if you know what I mean. So when I was doing the LA freeway, for example, I kind of wanted to wait till it was light enough to get through the early, the opening technical section. And I really wanted to be out of the technical section before it got dark again. But you guys were doing some technical things at night. Was it hmm. easier having someone else there or is that just me how i think I, I think the whole route was probably easier having someone else there not just at night uh but we did generally set our schedule uh to avoid as much technical stuff at night we really only had to do i'd say one uh maybe two more technical parts in the dark, which was uh, going through isolation we did in the dark. Mm -hmm. And then we had to do Neva kind of traversing across the ridge there. 
in the dark, but otherwise we did everything during the day. And I think both of us um, would have no desire to do the route alone. No, <laughs> I, I think that I'd be pretty, pretty bowled over if anyone managed to do that by themselves. I'm sure somebody could, but it's definitely not something that I have the appetite for. I, I definitely feel you there, Buzz, with things are pretty scary at night. Um, and even in the daytime, this is quite challenging, given that you're 30 hours deep and you've got to make some quite tough route finding decisions along the way. Um, it helps to have two brains, you know, two half brains together might make a full brain. So hopefully you make some good choices. But um, well, one other point there is that, you know, the, the schedule in terms of night and day, it's not really something that we left for for luck. We actually had a incredibly detailed uh uh, route plan and schedule set up so that we would purposely would not hit certain sections, um, you know, at inopportune moments. Um, and that worked out pretty well for us to kind of really dial that in. Good, good job. So you had a spreadsheet and you had your milestones that you were trying to hit and so you were planned it so that you could hit the, the more challenging sections while it was still light out. Yeah. I mean, just, just to give you an idea of like how, how, how we got it wrong last year and what we changed. Last year, we started at 5 p.m. at Milner Pass. Wow. We, we still had a schedule, but it was just <laughs> not really grounded in reality. But after all of our scouting this year, and we had a lot of data points, and we talked to a bunch of other people that had done the LA Freeway, we had all of this da these data points that, that kind of helped us calibrate the spreadsheet. And this year, we started at, I think, about 8.30 in the morning. And that worked out to be, for our pace, a pretty much perfect start time that allowed us to uh, finish the Arapahoes basically just at dusk. Interesting. Yeah, the Arapahoes, I, <laughs> it's not super technical, but those you just don't do it that often. Who wants to scout the uh, that North Ridge because it's in the watershed where you're sort yes. of not supposed to be? Correct. So it's kind of a hard one to scout. Hmm. Yeah, and our friend uh, Cordis Hall, he did the um, LA Freeway route. He, he set the uh, unsupported FKT on that recently, and he managed to kind of uh, get caught at night on that section unexpectedly. And uh, he definitely didn't sell that well to us. <laughs> we, were, we were pretty keen not to end up in the same predicament as him. <laughs> Good call on that. Appreciate that. So here's an interesting question. Uh, this last trip... Did you ever feel like quitting? I feel like quitting in every single race I ever do. So, yes. <laughs> I, I don't think it really came across, at least my mind, of like quitting. I, I think we were both, you know, when you invest enough time in something, yeah. you really don't want to quit. And once we hit a certain point that quitting just seemed more desirable, we had done enough and we're miserable enough that we didn't want to have to come back and try to do it again. <laughs> so, so at that point, you just kind of want to get it done to yeah. avoid ever having to go back and, and try again. Yeah. It does help that bailing out of this route in and of itself is quite a challenge. You're, you know, many miles away from really any sensible extraction point. So, you know, it's almost to some extent, once you've done the hard stuff, it's just easier to progress to the finish. <laughs> however difficult that is <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's uh that's a good point it's, it's such an amazing place because like i mentioned earlier you're in a sense you're close 
the closest civilization. You you can get cell phone coverage to Boulder mm-hmm. uh, from yeah. some parts, but on the other hand, you are in technical wilderness, and if you needed help, hmm, that's going to be kind of tough. And like you said, if you want to bail, wow, you you got a long way. You got a big walk out of there. Yeah, and there's certainly some sections where bailing's not really easy. You know, you're midway through some of the ridges. You're kind of committed, and you can't just like turn left or right off of the divide and drop down because that's actually worse, you know, more technical. <laughs> so, yeah, it, it's tough to do. And it's it's kind of interesting because when you're up there, certainly at night, you can actually see a lot of the lights of uh, Winter Park and Boulder and the Denver metro area. And everything looks quite close. But, you know, it's this weird dichotomy of like you see civilization, but you feel super remote at the same time. Yeah, I think we only saw like uh, apart from the start and finish, we only saw four people. Yeah. over two days. So you, you are definitely out there pretty remote. Wow. Four people. I like that one, Ryan. Uh, <laughs> you can see civilization, but you're really not there. Yeah. Hmm. What, anything else that you would like to tell people who are listening to this? Uh, I, of course, have done every inch of this uh, a couple of times, so I'm familiar with it. But for people who aren't, or anything you, else you would like to impart. Uh, it's uh, it's just a magnificent route. Sorry, I'm just searching for words. And I'm searching for your words. Yeah, it's uh, it's tough to describe. If obviously if you're not familiar with the area, um, I would you know, I definitely emphasize the kind of commitment necessary to complete the route. Not you know, it's a it's kind of a weird combination of skill sets that you need competency in the you know, over technical terrain up to fifth class climbing. So you probably need to be a little bit better than that to kind of feel comfortable. But then at the same time, you need to be able to go on your feet for, you know, two, two and a half days um, or longer potentially. And so it's just a, it's quite a strange mixed bag of, of, of skills required, I think, for success in this line. Um, you know, that's what kind of makes it appealing, I guess. It just, for me, Nick, at the outset, it seemed seemed kind of on the edge of feasibility. And that's kind of what attracted us to it. Wow. Do you recommend it to anyone else? Uh, yeah, I think with appropriate scouting and, yeah. you know, uh, as you said earlier, uh, if you anyone who wanted to do it, you definitely have to, to spend the time uh it's not something you can just roll up and and do like you can with a lot of things yeah definitely obviously favors you know us living here you know we can choose our weather window we can go on scouting days you know it does seem to be pretty impossible i think for somebody you know i'm sure there are people out there that possess that skill set that could kind of roll up and do it on site um but there's probably not too many people like that well so far justin simone and you too so <laughs> three is the crowd well done gentlemen i think this is a fabulous route and i really appreciate your effort thanks a lot Buzz. i appreciate talking to you yeah thanks Buzz.